Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. October 31st. This particular day, some 500 years ago, was the day that Martin Luther, a German monk, posted his 95 theses on the castle church in Germany. And that really spearheaded the whole Protestant Reformation. In fact, most people would know at least Uh, Some who know church history would understand that's why this day is called October 31st. It's called Reformation Day. And what was so significant of what Martin Luther did, particularly in the Western world and the influence it's had, is the church was living in what's called as the Dark Ages. And this man God raised up and God saved him, even though he was a um, German monk. And he stood up against the Pope, for he was, at the time, the Pope was selling things called as indulgences. It's essentially a way of buying your salvation. Beyond that, what it sparked is, is the, the authority of God's word. As a result of what Martin Luther did he, and what he stood up for, it sparked a reformation whereby people held on to not traditions that went on for years in the church, but to the authority of God's word and what is written in God's word. And beyond that, what Martin Luther stood against was the fact of how man cannot buy his righteousness, his right standing with God. He understood from the Bible as he read the Bible, as he studied the Bible, that that righteousness, that right standing before God can only happen by trusting in Jesus and what Jesus has done. And so it's a significant day, and particularly about 500 years ago, and particularly as this Sunday falls on October 31st. You know, and I find it interesting because, the, because of what the author of Hebrews particularly says in these few verses. You know, it's interesting when we think about Jesus, and particularly in our circles. You know, we think of Jesus as the king, the the forever king, the mighty king. In fact, if if you think of churches, and I try to do a Google search on this, uh, there's churches with names of Jesus as something king. You know, Jesus the risen king church, and Jesus the everlasting king church, and so on and so forth. But what's interesting is, I've not heard of one 
nor have I seen online either, even as I searched even recently, of any church that has the name with Jesus in it, has something like Jesus the Great High Priest Church. Somehow there's, there's this focus on the kingship of Jesus, and it is, it is very necessary, but what the author of Hebrews has been telling us is that it's not just the kingship, there's another office particularly that's important about Jesus as well, and that's his priesthood, that he is the high priest, the superior high priest, and the final high priest. You know, the author has been putting forward in just so many ways the superiority of Christ to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to Aaron, to the Levitical priests. And what he's going to go on to really is, is in one sense continue on with how great the priesthood of Jesus is, but he makes a slight transition from not just talking about Jesus' priesthood, but he wants to transition into the ministry of Jesus' priesthood, how the ministry of Jesus as a priest is better than the ministry of the old priests that have gone before. And you can understand why this is a particularly relevant topic for the people that the author is writing to. The book of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrews, these, these were mostly Jewish converts. They were Jewish Christians. They came out of a background where they regularly went to the temple for pilgrimage, uh, and especially uh, if they didn't uh, live nearby, it, it was this grand uh, pilgrimage that the whole family would take to the temple. And this temple was a massive structure, a beautiful structure. And and. At the temple there, there would be what was all these animal sacrifices. And there were these specially God-appointed men there who would offer these sacrifices. And particularly, uh, not just the ordinary priest, but there was also the high priest who had a special effort of special priestly robe, you could call it. It was very ornate with, it, with gems and stones and things like that. And so they were used to this, and they were used to this generation after generation after generation. These sacrifices and this temple worship and the priesthood and so on and so forth. But it's these people now who have come out of that. They've become Christians and where are these people meeting? They're meeting in people's homes. You know, small, small little gatherings of people. Nothing fancy over there. Everything seems ordinary. Singing some songs to God. They're reading the word of God. 
There's no fancy person there with some kind of special garb. Everything just seems ordinary. Sermons are being preached. And it's not just the fact that it's ordinary, it's the fact that, yes, they become Christians and all that big uh, glitter and glam of religion is gone, but now they are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. And so, now they're tempted to want to go back to some sort of religion now, because they're like, well, we seem so insignificant. Everything is so bland and ordinary. We don't even have a temple. We don't have a priest. Everything is just normal. Probably look like a small gathering like this. And on top of that, they're being persecuted. And so they're tempted now to go back to Judaism. To go back to, because Judaism was not under persecution. And it's not just the threat of persecution, but it's also the glamour of that external religiosity. And so the author is writing and trying to hammer in the point, no, no, you must not go back. You must not go back to those things. Why? Because Jesus is greater and superior than all those things. And really what he makes... He does make the point that because of the sinfulness of man, sacrifices are needed. But I want you to think of, you know, just the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. See, because it's not just that man can, okay, I'm a sinner before God and some sacrifice has to be made. I'll just get my sacrifice and bring it before God and all will be well. No, no. You see, man is so sinful that he, one, he needs a perfect sacrifice. And then on top of that, he needs someone else that God has appointed to take that sacrifice into God's presence to make it acceptable before God. No sinful man can ever do that. That's why a priest is needed. But that priest, what the author is arguing, is Jesus the final supreme high priest, who's greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron, greater than Joshua, greater than the Levitical priests. In fact, even greater than Melchizedek, because Melchizedek was just a a type that pointed forward to this great and supreme high priest. And so now he comes to say, I want you to understand the significance of this because because Jesus is a high priest, is the great and final high priest. I want you to understand, therefore, that the ministry that he carries out is also greater. It's a small transition, but he's moving towards that. And ultimately, in the second part of this chapter, he'll go on to then the new covenant that he mediates. So this morning we're going to look at the greatness of the ministry of Jesus' priesthood. And we're going to look at this under two headings. We're going to look at the exalted position from which Jesus ministers. 
So therefore, his ministry is greater. And then also the exalted place from which he ministers. That's in verses 2 through 5, which also makes his ministry greater than all the previous priests. So the exalted position of Jesus in verse 1 as high priest, which shows the greatness of his ministry. Verse 1 again of chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now this is again talking about Jesus' exaltation. You know, in different ways, the author has alluded to this. This is essentially all coming from Psalm 110. See, the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and he came to earth as a man, as a human babe and had the name Jesus. And as a man, he lived his life on earth as a perfect man and then he died on the cross. Bearing the full wrath of God as payment for the sin of his people and then he rose on the third day and then he ascended to heaven. And then God the Father appointed Jesus with an oath to this supreme position of both king and priest overall. As king and priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This Jesus is what Melchizedek pointed to. This Jesus is what the Levitical priest pointed to. This Jesus is what King David pointed to. Jesus, the God-man, is exalted now as king and priest forever over all. And this is what all the kings and the priests of the past was pointing to ultimately, to his person. And notice here, God is referred to as as majesty in heaven. That's referring to the, the awesomeness of God. That Jesus is now seated at the right hand of this awesome God. This God of power and might and glory. And the fact that he's seated at the right hand of this awesome God means that God is delighted in him. God has accepted Jesus as Jesus has ascended into and come before him. God has accepted Jesus and his work, which culminated on the cross. And now God has appointed him to be at his right hand. See, the person who sits at the right hand of the ruler in those days, was it was a supreme position of honor and power. This person acted on behalf of the ruler and possessed the authority and the power of the ruler. I mean, even these days we you know, have that term, this person is that person's right hand man essentially representing that person and has the authority of the person and has the power of that person. So Jesus is given the supreme position of honor and power and authority by God. But again, I want to remind you 
just by way of reminder, and perhaps some of you weren't there when we went through Hebrews 1. Now, this doesn't mean that there was a time in, well, any time for that matter, where the eternal Son of God was not supremely exalted. He always is, always was, and always will be supremely exalted, the eternal Son of God, as God. But the eternal Son of God took on human flesh. And as God-man, now fully God, but also fully man, so that now the eternal Son, as a man, is seated and exalted to this highest position at God's right hand. There a man is in this highest position of king and priest. No other man or being has ever been given this privilege. Moses was not given this privilege. The, you want to talk about the priests? Aaron or any of the Levitical priests, they were not given this privileged position. You want to talk about kings, the great, great King David, or any of the other Israelite kings? None of them were given this exalted position of being at God's right hand. In fact, not even the greatest created being, like an angel, was ever given this supreme position of honor and authority. And that's what chapter 1 was all about. Only Jesus, the God-man, the one in whom, as a man, the one in whom both offices of king and priest have come together, is now exalted at God's right hand and given this position of honor and power and authority. And what is Jesus doing now that he's exalted at God's right hand? He's ministering, and that's what verse 2 says, that he is a minister. What does a minister do? He ministers. He's ministering on behalf of his people. You know, I, I think that's a staggering thought, and here's why. Because when you think of the eternal Son of God, and Scripture says he did not consider it equality with God, and he came down to this earth as a man. And how is his life on earth described in Isaiah 53? That Jesus was, he was despised and rejected of men. That he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That he was oppressed and afflicted. And then he was brutally tortured and mocked and spat upon and then crucified on the cross. And then finally died on that cross because of all that torture. And as he bore the wrath of God, he suffered all that for his people. And after his death, he rose on the third day, ascended to the heavens, and to be in this exalted position, given the name that is above every name. And now in his exalted state, what does he do? Does he take a break? He said, you know, I've, I've had a, you know, it's, it's been rough on earth trying to get these people. Does he take a break now? No. What is he doing? 
No, he's a minister ministering to his people from the right hand of God, even now in his exalted state. And what the author is saying, this is the main point of what I am saying. We have such a high priest at God's right hand who possesses all authority and power of God and is ministering on behalf of his people. We have such a high priest, he's saying, and he's saying, this is the point that I'm trying to make. And if we think of all that the author has said about Jesus as the high priest from the previous chapter, Maybe this will just refresh our memory and help us to consider the the suchness that we have such a high priest. He told us in the previous chapter that he's a high priest who was appointed by God himself, where God himself swore an oath, which he hasn't done with any other priest, saying that he will be priest forever. Meaning that he will never be removed from this office meaning that there will be no one who will come after this. The author reminded us that Jesus is a priest who will continue forever and that he will never die. Why? Because he has an indestructible life. He has a life that has overcome death as he rose on the third day. What this means is that his priesthood cannot be passed on to any other person. Because no one else has that kind of life that can overcome death. No mere man can overcome death like that. But what that also means is that he will continue to, continue to be there forever. That he will never be absent as a priest in heaven. That he will always be there. And what it also means is that because he's at the right hand of God, having supreme authority and supreme power of God himself, there is nobody that he cannot help. That's how powerful he is. That he is a priest who can save completely and for all time those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. And what that means is he will not only save those of us who are his people, that he will also keep us saved. I want to read from a very familiar passage. And just listen closely as I read this passage. Romans 8, 33 to 39. Romans 8, verses 33 to 39. He says, the author says, this is Apostle Paul speaking, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, now listen to this carefully, More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And then he goes on to say, therefore, 
Implication, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Understand the logic of what these verses are saying in Romans 8. What is being said is that no one can bring a charge against God's children. That no one can condemn any of God's children. That nothing can break the relationship that we as God's children have with God in Christ. How can we be so sure that nothing will happen to this relationship? That nobody can bring a charge against us, his children? Because Jesus not only died for us, but he's also ever interceding for us. That's what the author is saying in Romans 8. And so what that means is if you're a Christian and you're burdened by the guilt of your sin, you can be assured that as you come to God through Jesus, that Jesus is always interceding for you based on what he has done on the cross for you. I have died for that sin of yours. I have paid the price for that sin of yours. And even as he prayed for Peter, Christian, you can be assured that when you go through difficulties and trials even, that Jesus is interceding for you to the Father so that your faith will not fail and that you will continue to persevere. And that's what that whole song that we sing, that he will hold me fast, that's how he holds us fast. Yes, we need to hold on to him, but ultimately he's holding on to us. And he's holding on to us because on the basis of his death, he's interceding before the Father and there is help and grace that comes our way as a result. Paraphrasing one commentator, I love what he says in this. If in his humble state, talking about Jesus, despised dying and dead, Jesus had the power to accomplish so great a work of salvation. How much more in his exalted state, at God's right hand, he is able to keep us and preserve us. And the author also told us in the previous chapter that Jesus is a priest who's fully suited for sinners because he has been made a priest. He has been made a perfect priest forever. The author also told us in chapter 2 that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And we went through this. The the meaning of the word perfect in the book of Hebrews has the idea of uh, completeness, of being made complete. So the idea is that the eternal son as a man has completed his task 
through the trials and the sufferings, even death on a cross. And now he's fully qualified, perfected to this exalted position to take on the role of royal priest as king priest at God's right hand forever. As a man, he has gone through temptations and trials and suffering to the nth degree in a way none of us will. The author has already told us in the previous chapters. But yet, what was the emphasis that the author kept saying? Yet he did not sin. And because he went through that, because he overcame that, he understands what it means to suffer and go through trials and temptations as a man, as a human being. And therefore, the author's word in some of the previous chapters was that Jesus is also a sympathetic priest who is able to understand our difficulties as frail human beings. And yet he is able to, because he has overcome and now he's seated at the right hand of God, he's able to provide mercy when we fail And he's able to provide the grace needed to persevere in our time of need. And here's what all that means. That even in his exalted state, Jesus sees us, his children, in our weakness. And he's always caring for us. He will always be that for us. That's why we have a man in heaven at the right hand of God. He will never stop, or as one theologian put it, we are always on his heart. And if that's not all, Jesus is the supreme priest and king. As a priest, he mediates between his people and God. And as king, he will govern his people, protect his people, vanquish his enemies, continuing to keep his people together. And this way, a man, Jesus, as king and priest, Jesus alone can bring about God's whole plan of salvation. And again, if you were following the logic of what was being said before, the things about the kingdom that is to come, and making a new earth, a making um, a kingdom that has joy and peace, which is all connected to the Abrahamic promises, ultimately the renewal of this whole world even. That is all connected now to this one person, Jesus. This one man, Jesus, who holds the office of king and priest. And only he, and only he can bring about the salvation of sinners. And only he can bring about essentially the renewal of this entire universe. The whole destiny of the entire universe is now connected to this one man, Jesus. This one unique King, priest, seated at the right hand of God, and he will bring it to pass. And so what the author is saying to his Christian listeners is, do you understand that you have such a high priest at God's right hand? 
That is the point that I'm trying to make, is what the author is saying. That you have this kind of priest, this quality of a royal priest at God's right hand right now. Yes, Jesus is ascended, risen and ascended to heaven and he's exalted to the highest position. But he hasn't abandoned us. He will never forsake us. He's ministering to us from God's right hand even now. And so what a great comfort this would have been to the original audience and even us as believers that we have this kind of royal priest ministering to us from God's right hand. Because people could be asking, oh, where is this Jesus? I mean, I don't see him around. What is he doing? Oh, we can point and say, oh, he is at the right hand of God on high. There is a man there, Jesus, interceding for me. We have this kind of high priest. And so because he is this kind of high priest, one who will be there forever, a permanent high priest, the ministry, therefore, in what he can accomplish is so much greater than any priest or king that has come before. That now brings us to the second reason why the ministry of Jesus as high priest is so much greater than all those others. It's because of the exalted place that he ministers from. The exalted place that he ministers from. Verses 2 through 5. Verse 2. It says now, Jesus, referring to Jesus, he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now this reference to holy place and tent, it should remind you of the tabernacle and the most holy place in there where God's presence was manifest. You know, in the tabernacle and even the temple. There were various sections which served as really even barriers, one section after another section, till finally you had the most holy place. It was showing how God was so holy and righteous and only whom God had appointed could finally come near to him. And that's why there were these sections and so many barriers all along the way to get into that most holy place. And as we've talked about before, even then, not everyone could go into the most holy place. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place and that to once a year and that to only for a short time and then he would offer the sacrifice, make intercession and then he would have to come out. But Jesus is a minister in the holy place, the true tent of the Lord. Meaning that Jesus is a minister that has gone into the direct presence of the Lord and he ministers from there. That he is in the true tent, meaning he's in the true dwelling place of God, that is heaven itself. You know, the mention of true tent here, it's not 
so much contrasting as though there was, there's a false tent or whatever other tent he's pointing to, that those were false. But it's more the idea of true in the sense of this is the, the genuine thing. The genuine dwelling place of God. Jesus is in heaven in the very presence of God and ministering from there. And you say, what's the significance of Jesus ministering from God's dwelling place? What's the significance of Jesus dwelling from heaven itself? Well, the author goes on. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. You see, every time the high priest had to make intercession, a sacrifice, sacrifice had first to be made, first for his own sins, and then a second sacrifice for the sins of the people before he could come into the most holy place and then intercede for the people. This was the most fundamental role of the high priest. Now, why was there need for sacrifice? Because of sin, right? The wages of sin is death. But no ordinary person could, was even fit to come and offer the sacrifice before the Lord. And that's why the priest was God's appointed person to offer sacrifices. But notice again there in verse 3, there's a distinction made there. Every high priest appointed was to offer gifts and sacrifices. Notice the plural there. Sometimes grammar is also so important in the Bible. It's plural, meaning that they would have to continue to offer sacrifices. Multiple sacrifices were made year after year. But Jesus, on the other hand, made a singular sacrifice. You know, Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, last week we rushed through this. It says that essentially Jesus offered something that no other priest has done before. And what is that? He offered up himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice. Why could he offer himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice? Because he was sinless. No other priest could offer themselves for the sake of their people because no other priest was sinless like Jesus. See, Jesus' death on the cross was an all-sufficient, singular sacrifice that he made. What are the implications of that? That means there is no more need for any other sacrifice. Another implication It also means that Jesus doesn't have to be crucified again and again for the sins of his people. Why? Because it was an once for all, all sufficient sacrifice. Unlike some other people who say, no, Jesus needs to be sacrificed again and again on that cross. And because it's a perfect, all sufficient sacrifice, Jesus can now intercede for his people. Where? In the direct presence of God. See, if Jesus' sacrifice was in an all-sufficient sacrifice, 
He couldn't have direct access to God's presence. None of the other priests could do that because they themselves were sin, sinful and their sacrifice was not the perfect sacrifice. But Jesus has now entered into the very presence of God to intercede for his people, not for a short time, but for all time, forever. Why? Because his sacrifice was a one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice. Jesus doesn't need to die again. No other sacrifices need to be made again. And this is the kind of priest that God had intended Jesus to be. A royal priest who ministers on behalf of his people in the very presence of God in heaven. He was never meant to be a priest on earth. Look at what the author says as a result. Verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, talking about Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Think about this, right? When Jesus was on earth, Jesus spoke with authority and he said, I'm the son of God. He spoke of himself as the Messiah, as the one who would establish God's kingdom. He did many miracles. He challenged the religious leaders of the day. But one thing that Jesus never did was claim any right to minister in the temple as a priest. Jesus never did that when he was on earth. He never attempted to step into the inner sanctuary of the temple. He was like everyone else, every other common person. He limited himself to the outer courts of the temple at the time. Why? Because he was not qualified according to the law to minister in that earthly temple. He did not come from the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. So he was not qualified to enter and offer any sacrifice in that earthly temple. And the implication is, so he was never meant to be that kind of priest ministering in that kind of tabernacle and temple. And so then the author goes on to say about these earthly temples and tabernacles and the priesthood there on earth. Verse 5. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Let me just stop there for a moment. They serve as a shadow and copy of the heavenly things. Now, what's a copy? A copy is not so much like... um, you know, recently for one of my children, uh, we got a toy snake, a remote control snake for that matter. Uh, and it's, you know, it kind of wriggles around and it's, it's got these red lights and, and none of my children will be named, but sometimes uh, one of my children will use that to scare one of my other child. It, but it, it's not a real snake, though. It does look kind of like a snake, and it sort of operates like a snake. 
And it is kind of scary, I guess, for a little child. But nonetheless, it is still a copy. It is not the original thing. It is not a true snake. And the author's point is, those shadows that the, the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood on earth, they were merely a copy. It wasn't the real thing. It was just a copy. And, it was, and what a copy does is it essentially shows how, demonstrates how something works. That's what a copy does. But he says it not only serves as a copy, demonstrate how something works, but it is also a shadow of the heavenly things. A shadow is different from a copy because when you see a shadow, you know that that shadow is not the real thing, right? That that it's really just uh, the projection of an actual substantive thing. And so when you see a shadow, you're looking for, oh, where's that shadow coming from? What is the thing the shadow is coming from? So what a shadow does, it points to something, versus a copy shows you how something works. And the author's point is the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and all of that were merely a shadow and a copy. They were temporal things. They were just to show you about this ultimate reality that was to come. In fact, the author then says, for when Moses, again in verse 5, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was given very specific instruction in how you make the tabernacle and then later on with Solomon in how he was to make the temple. Very specific instructions. Now, people couldn't just make something up and say, okay, now let God come and dwell in this place. No, because the, the tabernacle and the temple had a specific purpose. They were a copy and a shadow of the true thing, of the true dwelling place of God. And if you think about it, like even just something as, a, you know, a mere tabernacle that was made, the materials that were used, very specifically defined. The measurements of each thing in the tabernacle, very specifically defined in Exodus, you know, chapter after chapter. In fact, even the people who were involved in putting all this together, they were specially gifted by God to put all this together. It wasn't just ordinary people, ordinary people with no craft skill that could come and put it all together. So it was done in such a way that there was now a copy so that you would understand something about the ultimate reality of what happens in God's dwelling place. It was a shadow that was pointing to the substance of God's ultimate reality and how God would bring about his plan of salvation. It was pointing to Jesus and what he would do ultimately as the ultimate high priest. And so the point that the author is trying to make here is to the people that he's writing to, don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to those mere priests that are there around. 
Why? Because they served a purpose. It wasn't that they were bad. They were appointed for God for a particular time. They served a purpose. They were a copy and a shadow of the ultimate substantive reality of Jesus, of God's dwelling place and of Jesus as a high priest and what he would do and how he would reconcile people back to God. And so what that means now is that now under this new covenant, there's no longer, because now the true high priest has been revealed and the true sanctuary in heaven has been made known and our high priest is there in that true sanctuary, there's no longer any holy places now designated now on earth. No, that's why we don't have any particular buildings. That's not to say, you know, we would forever like to be renting from the school as much as we're thankful for the school for that. I mean, we'd love to have our own building and, you know, make it nice if possible. But it's not something that is designated by God. That God has said, no, that's the holy place. There's nothing special about this building. Or even if we have our own building and it looks nice, there's nothing special about it. Yes, the old temple and the tabernacle, it had a purpose. It was a shadow and a copy. And what also that means is that there are no more priests. Because Jesus, the final, ultimate, final priest has come. And his ministry is one that is ultimate. Because what these men were doing, priests were doing before, was pointing to what Jesus would do ultimately. And now that Jesus is now crowned as king and priest forever at the right hand of God, there is no need for any other priest anymore. And here's the implication then. If we were to go back to human priests again, we're making a mockery, a mockery of what Jesus has done and is doing. If we ever go back to those kind of priesthood, that's the implication. You know, the blessed thing that the author is saying and wanting us to understand is that there is a man at the right hand of God. He is our king and priest forever. And the fact that that man, Jesus, stands as our representative in heaven before God's very presence means that all who are relying on this man, Jesus, will never be ever turned away from God. Why would anyone want to turn away from Jesus when God himself has said, he is the king and priest forever. I swear it with an oath. And he mediates a perfect ministry. I pray that 
perhaps some of us who are not even tempted to go back to priesthood and things like that. At least to think of this. Because this is who Jesus is. If we are ever tempted to turn away from him, it's not just that the promises we lose, it is that our eternal destiny itself is lost. But if we turn to him and cling on to him and hold fast to him, then we're not only saved, but there's so much about the salvation that he's bringing about. And that's what the author is trying to say, that we have such a high priest at God's right hand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, again, for pictures and images. We know that sometimes things take time to understand. And Lord, we thank you that even for years and years on, you, you had instituted the priesthood and the temple worship and the sacrificial system. Yet they were all just mere copies and shadows to help man understand what is ultimately true. And when Jesus came and did what he did, that we could understand his role as eternal king and eternal high priest and the fact that he and the need for him to make a sacrifice for us and the need for him to intercede on our part. Oh Lord, we just thank you much for our perfect high priest. We thank you much that he is now even ministering from heaven and he's not on earth, which is also a reminder to us that his sacrifice was sufficient. Otherwise, he would never have direct access to you. And because he has direct access to you, we can be guaranteed that as our representative, as a man, as he is there, as we trusted him, we will ultimately be made right with you and all the blessings and the promises of the salvation that you're going to bring about in and through him will also be ours. Lord, help us to continue to cling on to Jesus and recognize that everything else is but sinking sand. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.